point reaches and serves into the body and the forehand comes back and big inside out forehand and that is it game set match championship Rafa Nadal the world number one is down on his knees absolute delight his first title in Toronto since 2008 his fourth in the Rogers Cup an embrace from the players at the net but it is Rafa Nadal the world number one who reigns supreme once again the delight on the Spaniard's face. Masters title number 33, singles title number 80, and a straight sets victory over Stefano sets about 6-2-7-6. Welcome to the latest edition of the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. Rafa Nadal champion once again in 2018. Five finals, five titles. His first trip to Toronto since 2008. He goes back there. He wins another Rogers Cup crown. That is four for Nadal. 33 at Masters level. Absolutely incredible moving three clear of Novak Djokovic and 80 for his career I'm very happy to say that alongside myself Gigi Salmon Miles McLagan Miles we watched that final together Rafa Nadal against Stefanos sits about 6-2-7-6 in favor of Nadal and once again, and we said this at the time, it gets a little difficult as to what to say about Nadal because he just keeps bringing it to the court. He, he absolutely does continue to, to marvel at, at how strong he is, what a competitor is, the, the desire to, to hunt down every ball, to, to win every point, to get a stranglehold on the, on the match. And I think Sitsipas would... You know, he'd had a great week. He, he pretty quickly realized what he was up against and, and what it was going to take, a pretty sharp learning curve against what, what, one of the greats in our sport. Rafa Nadal went into this as world number one. He already had himself a nice cushion because Roger Federer decided not to play the tournament and he had runner-up points to defend. It stretches that lead at the top of the table. I've spoken about how many career titles and how many Masters crowns. How important is being world number one? Where would it have come into his mind the fact that he's now got this gap on Roger Federer in the rankings? He's now hit 10,220 points with Roger Federer behind him at 6,480. I think it's very important to him. And, you know, these guys have, have talked about th that ranking is, is your, your quality over a period of time. Of course, they want to win these titles. Uh, and, and I think it's... Um, I, I don't know if it's something he sets out the year to, to, to do, but I would imagine they also think if you take care of the titles and, and, and the tournaments, then that ranking is going to reflect that. And that's certainly happening in his, you know, his record in the finals this year. It's, well, it, it is remarkable. He's, he's been a tough man to beat. Five from five. Slightly surprising or not that that was his first Masters hardcourt title since Cincinnati in 2013. A little surprising, yeah. When I, when I first um, read that and, and saw it, I thought you know there might have been something in between. Of course, he had had hardcore titles in that in that time, Doha and I think Beijing, perhaps. But uh, uh, yeah, these these titles, particularly as he loves Indian Wells, uh, and I think. Uh, you know, he, he obviously missed that swing this this year when he when he's been playing some some great tennis. Still to get his hands 
on the Miami trophy at all. So that's something that can keep motivating him. But, uh, yeah, it just keeps rack racking up the title. So it was surprising to see it had been that long on a hard court in the Masters 1000s. There is a lot to love about <laughs> Indian Wells. What impressed you the most about Rafa Nadal over the course of the week in Toronto? I think, you know, without being, uh, you know, talking him down at all, it's, it's, he just continues to do the same. And it's an incredible level, that, 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 that hunger and desire for every single point. I, I think sometimes the predictability of a player, and in this case Nadal, is a strength because you just know what you're going to get. And after you've got it for a couple of games, it's, wow, this is, I've got more of this. I've got to keep <laughs> doing this for how long, you tell me? An hour and a half, two hours, three hours? I'm not sure if I've got that in me. Only very few really have. And I think, you know, it's a pass. I know there was a comeback at, at the end, but I think, you know, on top of the fact that he'd had a pretty tough run through but you know Nadal made it made it clear very early that how tough it was going to be. Rafa Nadal said as he collected the trophy of Stefano Tsitsipas exactly the same as he said of him at the end of the Barcelona final which wasn't as close as as this final 6-2 6-1 on that occasion that Tsitsipas has an amazing future and I feel like we've seen a glimpse or maybe more of a glimpse more than a glimpse of what's to come from Stefano Tsitsipas this week culminating with him taking his place and his playing his part in his first Masters 1000 final on his 20th birthday. He said a lot of uh, sort of records or, or achievements this week, and that, yeah, the four top ten wins in a row, backing them up the way he came back against Zverev. So, uh, yeah, it was it was impressive to watch the, the way he played. Whether you know where where it will end, as he said, Rafa Rafa sort of in the ceremony said, you know, got a bright future. I think that's that's not really uh, debatable, but. You know, how far exactly? I think we'll wait to see. And, and if and when, well, it, it will be when because they can't go forever. But these top, you know, Nadal and Federer, they do finally move on. Uh, we'll, we'll see who's got that special mentality that one of, wants to be the top dog. He went into the tournament, Stefano Sitzpas, at world number 27. He comes out of the tournament at world number 15. What do you especially like about Stefano Sitspas and the Sitspas game. And I know we can always learn and we talk about how in the last few years the Rafa Nadal backhand has developed, but what do you see at this stage, this moment, that Sitspas could develop and work on? Well, he, this week he, he looked pretty complete and, uh, you know, the serve was... The serve worked very well from him. He got a lot of free points, which I think is key because you can't... There's so many big guys out there, and it's so tough that you you can't work for every single point. Uh, there, there was power on the forehand. There, there was power on the backhand. So I, for me, I don't see any glaring obvious, uh, glaring weaknesses. I mean, it is tough for him today. That one-hander against the against Nadal. It was. Um, you know that's something that took a long time even for Roger Federer maybe the greatest ever to to, to overcome so the, there's some areas like that but I think it's just you know getting better at the things he does is, is going to be his way forward for the moment and it's going to be interesting to see the reaction from here because this week understandably took an awful lot out of him both physically and mentally very, very much so. Yes, I'm, I'm fascinated and he's, it's, it's got a difficult start in, in Cincinnati Goffin who's you know top top 10 himself and um, and a tough competitor so that'll be uh, 
be difficult for him. But I, I think uh, you know I, I would I wouldn't worry too much. Which I mean, if he if he plays from a sit's best point of view, if he plays great, great. If he doesn't. I think that's that's part of the course, and it's about learning how to back up big weeks and 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 becoming more accustomed to being in that situation. So you can't; it doesn't take as much out of you, and you're ready for the the week after. He grabbed an awful lot of headlines throughout his week in Toronto. He made an awful lot of new friends. I mean, around the final, there were helium balloons for his birthday with the with the numbers two and zero, and the crowd sang "Happy Birthday" before he gave his runners-up speech. But elsewhere from the week we've had and everything moves back to Montreal next year. What else has stood out for you? Maybe the player that there's a little must-do better next to him, someone that shone for you, or just generally a story from the week? Well, I mean, must do better. Not, not really, because he, he can. He, he's done enough to do whatever he wants now. Novak Djokovic. It was a little bit of a bizarre. Uh, his mentality. He didn't look as though he was hundred percent dialed in, and and perhaps. Perhaps because he hadn't been in the situation for a while, Wimbledon t took more out of him than than he thought it would, just because he hadn't been accustomed to competing at that top level. So, um, you know, maybe he wasn't quite mentally ready to, to dig in because, um, you know, his, it wasn't the same competitor that we that we saw. Uh, I, I enjoyed watching, you know, Karen Hachinov was a... He played some really good tennis, and the way he he brushed Robin Hasa aside was impressive. I mean, he was looking for his first semi-final, and he threatened Nadal as well. He played some big tennis, so you know, I think for for me the story was some of these young guys and different young guys really making their mark. We've seen, you know, Shapovalov obviously last year. Um, you know, Charge had has had a good start to the year. TFO's got his title, and there was a couple of other these young guys making making their mark. So I think they're, they're they're starting to come. And Kevin Anderson, at the other age of the age scale, proving that he needs to be in these conversations because he's reaching mm. the latter stages of big tournaments on a regular basis now. Absolutely the case. I think he's very comfortable and confident in his game. He knows what he's trying to, to do out there. He's gaining a belief because he's putting himself in these situations more and and more often. He tough tough week for him. He had that uh, he had a match point uh, against Sitsipas in that tiebreak in the third set and uh, wasn't able to convert. I think he would have loved another go at, at Nadal in the final. Obviously went down to him in that, that US Open final. But, you know, he continues through perseverance, continues to knock on the door to improve. So you're right, he's popping up in conversation at the end of tournaments pretty regularly. Miles McLaggen, have you enjoyed your time in Toronto and are you ready for what we're going to get in Cincinnati? Yeah, I think it's been great. I mean, they, they, they do run such a such a nice tournament and I think, uh, I, yeah, I, I am and I'm, I'm enjoying, I mean, Cincy, we, we've got the, the, the old big four back, haven't we? We've got uh, and a potential Murray, Federer. I, I, I quite enjoy some of these big matches up early on because I think maybe it's a, it's a little masochistic, but you know, someone's going to have someone's. There's a lot on it in a different way because someone's not going to have a good week because they're going to go early and 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 parts of the draw open up. And I think we, I think we could be entering an absolute golden period when we've got these young guys. They'll need to improve a little bit, but threatening 
the, the big guys at the top. Can we stretch it to big five? Was Stan Wawrinka in there as well? He played some good tennis this week. He threatened Nadal. He uh, he was, uh, I, I know he was delighted. He, a five-set win over Dimitrov at Wimbledon. I think it was five sets, perhaps four, but it was a tough match. And, you know, he was delighted in that performance and, and possibly in the same way as, as Djokovic, but maybe a few months behind. It's, it's about putting one good performance together then it's putting a couple together and then it's getting through a few more until you're back to to your best and you know he's he's starting to to put matches together there's not a lot of time to breathe or to rest especially for the players at the top of their game because things march on to cincinnati miles thank you very much for thank being you. with us going to get a little bit of rest before cincinnati kicks in don't worry it's not the end of the atp tennis radio podcast jill krabus has been our reporter was our reporter during the week in, in toronto and she spoke to i think nearly everybody who took to site at the Aviva Centre. We had a few rain delays and Jill really stepped up to the plate. There were some fantastic, fantastic interviews. So we've put together for a big chunk of this podcast, Jill's best bits. And there really was only one place to start. It was a really nice chat with the dad, Apostolos, of Stefanos Tsitsipas. Well, I'm very pleased to be in the player lounge now and joining me right me now... Too. <laughs> joining me is the father of Stefano Sistipas, Apostolos Sitsipas. Thank you so much for joining us here on ATP Tennis Radio. Did I say it correctly? It's correct. Absolutely. It's correct. Yes. Okay. As far as like being ready for those types of matches when you're playing the big players, is there a certain mindset that you talk about when you're going into those kind of matches to, to settle himself? You know how the, the players, the young players see it like when this is such a great champion like Novak Djokovic opposite of them is like it's like the play with the history of tennis <laughs> so and uh, but but I believe you know one match is just one match you know uh, it helps you it helps you to to improve it helps you to settle some things in your mind but it's not the most important in your career for me the best the most important in your career is to play good tennis to and to be happy about yourself it's very difficult. Of course, of course, you you have to talk to the player to tell him that you don't think against whom you play. You just play the, the play the game, play the ball, play play your tactics, play your game. But uh, you know, this is the way we usually the players try to proceed in this kind of uh, game. But I believe that uh, the players themselves, you know, when they're going out there in the court and they decide to follow the tour, and at this level, Stevens now is. Uh, top 20 uh, I think they're ready to fight they're ready to to proceed they're ready to go to the to the top so they have this uh, in, initial ability let's say inside them uh, initial power so you don't need to speak so much about it <laughs> they're fighters you know the one who's out there in the courts and uh, they're holding the racket and uh, staying like a couple of hours in the court they're big fighters all of them and I just want to ask you, because um, he's had such great success this past year, and he's really just r risen up the rankings. Were there certain things that you focused on last year, that like a couple, two or three certain things that you focused on last year to get to him to this spot where he is now? Yes, uh, yes, he focused uh, in the physical part. He worked a lot in physically, but I can say not a lot. I can say he did uh, he, the right things. Uh, with his fitness coach, Mr. Lefebvre, and uh, and uh, Muratul Academy organized a, a kind of um, uh, program around him that uh, to 
to to drive his his mind to the top. So it's very smart from Patrick Muradoglu, and uh, I'm really happy that he's in this kind of group of people, and uh, which they are already champions. They achieve a lot of things in their life and uh, in, with their with their let's say programs, and uh, it works good for Stefanos actually right now. And so what really impresses me about Stefanos is, of course, not only his tennis game, but the way he carries and handles himself off the court. How much, you mentioned Patrick on the mental side, how much do you help him with that mental side as well? Hopefully, hopefully I'm successful in this. Uh, definitely is very, very important. Uh, for me, the most important is that, that he, he's good out of the tennis court. That's that is successful as a fire. Good, fire. as you mean happy and yes, yeah. that's successful. That, that's that's if I I don't want to talk about my success as a tennis coach, as a mental trainer. I want to talk my success as a father. If I'm successful as a father and my family are, are happy, my child is happy, uh, then then I'm I'm really happy myself because this is my role in life. I'm a father. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as a tennis coach, okay. You know, I, I know some. I have some education about tennis. I have some experience about tennis coaching, but it doesn't mean anything. I cannot uh, provide someone with this information and he will become a champion. But if uh, if I if I manage to 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 bring out his his uh, let's say what he has, if I take out the racket, if I take out uh, the tennis skills, if I take out his and what it's left, that's important from one uh, human being, from one athlete. This one you have to, to help to take the shape, the beautiful shape. And I believe, I believe in this field. I'm happy because Stefanos is a very humble boy. He likes uh, he likes the people. He likes uh, he, he he's a, he's kind with with his with the other players. He's kind with his fans. He's kind he's kind with the small children. He's kind with his parents. And it's very nice to see that from your child. I mean, I think it comes across extremely well. I think a lot of people see that. I mean, he's getting a lot more exposure and exposure now, so you can see that coming through. And I know you're also a big part of a lot of stuff that he's doing off the court. He's got his own podcast now. Yes. Um, talk a little bit about that. How did that come about? Or was that his idea? Yes, he likes he likes to expose his ideas. Uh, he likes to invite some people. He likes to to see if he can uh, he can uh, he can copy something about uh, about his life in, in in the tapes to have it as a memory because sometimes he's telling me you know the life is going and i want to have this these memories i live so intensively and i want to have them somewhere in the tapes <laughs> he says this is for me the most important for f- uh, when we talk about technology that that's for that reason it's good at technology that's, I think it's the smart way because uh, when, when he captures his photos, his trips, his, it's his life. He says, this is my life now. I need to remember one day what, what I did. And I need to, if I can help some people with what I do, I'll be very, very happy. He says. And of course, he's helping his friend back home with, the, with the fires and that are happening in Greece. Alex, yeah, he, he, was, he was astonished because he, he, he was maybe the second biggest talent in Greece. Alex Caldwell. Uh, fortunately, I don't know. He's playing college tennis uh, this time. He had a lot of tough uh, situations with his family, and the last one was was amazing. He survived from this uh, catastrophe, and Stefanos, he was there. He helped him, and he's still helping him. And he's trying to to tell him, "Come on, fight! You're a fighter. Go on." That's just <laughs> amazing. It's good. It's good yeah. yeah, it's amazing. It's good. It's good that it's good that he remembered this childhood moment, and he's so close to them. Yeah. 
and still is close and he didn't forget and it's so nice to, to know that yeah and and also I, I i read recently that he took a trip on his own to try and learn about himself yes. a little bit more was that did, was that a suggestion from you or when he went uh, or is that him as well no he decided himself he says i want to stay alone and he visits some islands he spent 10 days there he was just by himself and he was very very happy and uh, he, when he came back, I asked him, oh, what? I told him, how was the trip? And he says, I didn't know, he says, that there are th- so many things to learn about yourself. <laughs> so it, can you give us any insight of what he learned? Or? Uh, I don't know, he didn't tell he me. Didn't he didn't tell oh, he keeps it to himself. There are so many things is, I didn't know about me. Wow. So I get to know myself much better now. And uh, and that's very happy to hear from young people because that's, at the end, is, this is the, the thing. Because... We were talking about the other people. We're involving with the other people who don't know about ourselves. And so, and so, after he took that trip, he didn't really reveal anything. But did you notice a difference in his tennis when he came back from that trip? Yes, that trip after that, the after this trip, he started his the way up. He was very, very certain and very, uh, very um, let's say, very much uh, focus, uh, very much uh, decisive, very much. He was much happier. I, I saw it. He was much happier. I think he decided that that's the meaning of my life, my tennis. Because maybe until this moment, he wasn't 100% sure that did I make the right choice in my life. It, it's really something that is inside me. He ma- makes me full. And probably these 10 days, mm-hmm. thought about it and missed it. And he said, okay, now I have to go for it. Wh- when was this trip again? I was after Miami. After Miami, okay. And can you, where did he go? Or you can't really, you that's a secret Island, too. Somewhere in Fiji oh. Islands. <laughs> okay. And uh, I remember maybe the, maybe the island was Anegada Island. A small island, maybe 20 local habitants. Mm-hmm. And uh, he told me it's a paradise on earth. Because, and then he told me another thing, that the time there is flowing much slower. He says, must be some kind of uh, phenomenon, he says, yeah. I say, oh, Really? <laughs> uh, he felt that there's no stress, you know. You know, we have so much stress in, in our everyday life, in the tour, and it's it's mm. tough for them. For for these guys, I, I don't understand how they survive. Stress in the morning, stress during the match, that before the match, that after the match, stress during the night. And I always ask him, can I do something that you, I get a little bit stress? I think, I think maybe maybe the absorption. Um, that I'm absorbs him, absorb a little bit of his stress. Maybe that's the best help I can give to him right now. Nothing <laughs> more than this. <laughs> um, and just and now, just going back to the the tennis a little bit, as your as his coach, what what's the goal for him? The goal uh, is to come in to be healthy and play good tennis. That's the goal. He's played a lot of matches. <laughs> yes, he played a lot of matches uh, to be healthy, to be fresh as much as he can and play his best tennis. And hopefully he will enjoy it. He will enjoy it. Well, he looks like he's enjoying it. Yeah. But Apostolos, really, c- congratulations. He's had a, a great you. last couple of weeks. Thank you. And uh, best of luck. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So best of luck. Thank you. Appreciate you we taking the time. We have to be a fan for, the, for every, every player who is yeah. out there and fighting. And all of them, they're giving their soul yeah. for the game. Yeah. And having young guys are coming behind from behind. So it's so beautiful to see it. So beautiful. So it means that this this sport, it's alive, it's evolute. So it's mm-hmm. beautiful, and all these all these top guys like I start from uh, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, such a lovely guys, all of them. 
They, they brought the tennis in such a beautiful, let's say, level. So beautiful to, to be part of it, you know. I feel so, so nice to be part of it. My, give me chills. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys, that you do such a great job. I mean, I always say that I didn't know that it can be people that they love their job so much and they can do such a great job. It's amazing. Well, you, well, people that we get to interview make it special too because we really enjoy talking to everyone and learning about you guys and, and how yes. passionate you are Thank about you. this sport. So. In your disposal every time. Thank you very much. <laughs> to Thank talk, you. To, to express our ideas. Well, I, I just want to make one last comment because you've mentioned Nadal, Federer, um, Djokovic all being such great mentors. And, and many I, other guys. And many other guys, yeah, of course. Know, yes. And I, I, I feel like Stefanos is going to be one of those mentors for those young kids coming up later. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's going to be the best, actually, yeah. to be a mentor of someone and to, to, to help other kids uh, with, uh, to how, how is the word, to, to love To the influence them, yes, yeah. To influence, to yeah. influence them, to play, yeah. to... to, to yeah. to, to play tennis because it's very very tough yeah for the young kids probably this kind of uh, people they can be really, they play the most important role in their life to continue tennis very well said thank you so much for joining us on atv tennis radio thank it's you. a pleasure thank you well i've been lucky lucky enough to grab brad stein coach of kevin anderson in the hallway earlier today and he's been nice enough to sit down with me brad thank you so much for joining us on atp tennis radio uh you're welcome it's always a pleasure you're always so nice to to give us your time but i did have to wait for you for a couple minutes because you had to get your (laughs) free hair care products in the corner as we're sitting in the player lounge (laughs) it's important stuff it's one of the uh one of the many perks of being at the um at the highest level of the game is that we get all kinds of crazy free stuff you know it's always funny because the people that don't need free stuff are the ones that get all the free stuff so but you got to take advantage while it's there and um you know i haven't gotten a haircut for since wimbledon so i needed it's about time i needed my hair care products <laughs> speaking of wimbledon i wanted to bring that up because kevin obviously had an amazing run there it's your your first experience with him in particular as a coach of a finalist of a slam just talk to us about that feeling for you um, I mean, obviously, when I started with Kevin, uh, that was one of the objectives was was to go deep in the majors, you know, and, and with his experience at the U.S. Open last year, uh, we obviously discussed that with me coming on board, that that was one of the objectives. He wanted to go, you know, a step further and have those opportunities. Um, he put himself in a position to have that opportunity. Again, obviously, it doesn't always go your way, but just being able to get deep in the tournaments, um, is is what you're looking for and, and creating that opportunity um it was an amazing run i mean i mean you know the opportunity to play roger in the quarterfinals and then the match against john which was you know a pretty epic match obviously in the semis um but i i also look back on it and i think about he beat gael monfils you know in a pretty solid match four sets in the round of 16 to get to the quarterfinals to play roger and then have a chance to win that match um there are just so many things. To, like as you go through the matches, he didn't have an easy draw right from the beginning. Um, second round he played Seppi. Third round he played Cole Schreiber. Both veteran players that are really dangerous and and have wins over a lot of really top players. And and um, so it, you know the whole experience was amazing. Obviously, getting all the way to the final is something that with Kevin, you know, wasn't wasn't expecting it but at the same time as he progressed through the draw we you know had a feeling that he was capable of doing that and um and so i think that 
you know, he sent a message to the other players. He sent a message to himself that he can do that again and again, you know, and hopefully that we'll have more opportunities under those circumstances. Do you feel like having those tougher rounds earlier in the draw and Wimbledon helped him in the later later stage in the second week? Um, yeah, I think so, probably. I mean, I think that he knew going into the match with, with Seppi, for example. I mean, it, even his first-round match, he played a guy that had qualified, so he, you know, come through the qualifying, was playing well. Um, pretty flat ball striker in Norbert Gombos, who who played well. I mean, Kevin came off that match and was like, geez, this guy's a really good player, you know? And um, and then playing Seppi, who he knows is a very good player, playing Kohlschreiber, who he had played in Madrid on clay, um, who we know is very dangerous, you know? And really having... To, to focus and be intent upon what he was doing with those matches, I think definitely helped him. It was an interesting stat. Someone sent me a, a thing after the tournament that said Kevin had played 332 games at Wimbledon. It's a record wow. for the most number of games ever played at Wimbledon. And, and I my response to my friend who sent that to me um it's a very cool little graphic the way they set it up and everything so it was kind of it was cool to get it but my response to that was out of those 332 games in my estimation he played zero games without focus and engagement and intent in what he was really trying to do and that's an amazing that's incredible yeah that's an amazing tribute to kevin and kevin's uh mentality as a player and his commitment to what he's trying to do uh i'm not taking a ton of credit for that you know but um that's kind of the way he's built as a player and so to have competed through that many games and and in my estimation i'm i'm not exaggerating i feel like he he didn't have a single game throughout those entire 332 games where he really kind of checked out or anything like that so has that has that sort of been like a a work in progress to because of how physical he was during those two weeks to be able to mentally focus for that long is is not an easy thing to do are there different um tactics he he takes to make sure he can focus each point like that or each game yeah well i i think that i think that it, it has been a work in progress in a lot of ways because i think that when you and i spoke last which i believe was at indian, indian wells, wells yeah um you know, we talked a little bit about Kevin having been involved last year with making some changes in his approach to things mentally and emotionally and, and being a little bit more uh, demonstrative on the court and, and emoting more on the court. And that was important for him. And I think that I think I mentioned at Indian Wells that that he would say that he really needed that at that time. And as I came in and came on board, we we tried to carry that into the next level, which I felt was to be able to maintain that kind of intensity and focus and energy and commitment to what he was doing, but not expend so much energy, uh, physical energy, really, with, with the actual emotive part, trying to be a little bit more selective about when you're going to, you know, pump your fist and, you know, really let out a, a cry or something like that. And I think at Wimbledon that that all really kind of came together. And it's it has been a, a work in progress with Kevin and with uh, Jay Bosworth, who he works with, and with his, uh, his uh, mental coach. He has a sports psychologist that he works with in Boca. And, and, um, and it, it, it just, I felt like right from the start, from the first round match, that he was just much better with his body language, that he was much better with his presentation, and that that was creating uh, an environment for him on the court 
Where How he, so would you say with his body language? Um, he was just more more up, more positive. We've talked a lot about you know we have this little thing about chin up, chest out, um, carrying yourself in a in a way regardless of what's going on on the court that that looks like you know you're out there to compete. He is out there to compete. You know we know that, but we want him to send that message to the other guy. We want him to to send that message to himself. You know and 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 be very. Uh, positive with so that his body language is creating something for himself where it's not as necessary for him to to pump his fist or to or to you know throw in the commands you know after every single point Um, we felt like uh, after Paris with the situation with with Schwartzman where he was up and that um, as that match went on longer and longer that he committed a lot of emotional energy to what was going on and he was actually it's the only match I've seen Kevin play since I've been with him where he was a little bit gassed at the end of the match and I think it was more of a, a mental emotional thing than it was a physical thing and so that was something that we were trying to kind of avoid and I felt like all the pieces just kind of came together I mean if you go back and you know you look at the matches um all of his matches really he's he just his presentation i think is really strong but he's not so up and down emotionally um where he's getting so high and there's nowhere to go but really to come down a little bit and and so he was much more stable and much more calm and much more collected i think in the in the key moments against gael against roger against john and um Unfortunately, in the final, I think that, you know, it was just hard for him to be able to recover from the match with um, with John, you know, having gone as long as, I mean, the fifth set took three hours almost. So it was kind of crazy how that carried over. But, but the quality of the tennis was incredible against John. And just is talking a little bit, backtracking to the, the previous round against Roger, I felt like the way Kevin handled himself, I mean, one of the biggest wins of his career, but to come back and be able to follow that up and play exceptional tennis, I mean... That's the calmness you're talking about is being able to recover and, and come back the next day. Yeah, absolutely. That that was, I mean, um, you know, I, I was very clear with him when he came off the court about the fact that he had won a phenomenal tennis match, but he had also put himself in a position to win the biggest tournament in the world, really, and that we needed to be focused on what was coming ahead and then we could you know look back and celebrate the that win and whatever else he accomplished in the tournament um and he he didn't really even need that from me I don't think because he was very calm coming off that match he wasn't jumping up and down like you know this is the greatest win of my life or anything like that I think he he knew what he wanted to accomplish and um and so I I I was really proud of that because we see that all the time in the game you know at the top level of the game where you you have a player that that pulls off a, a great win a phenomenal win against a against a you know a legendary player like Roger and then comes back and is kind of flat for the next match and doesn't perform very well and I felt Kevin came out against John and right from the start was actually much more comfortable than he's probably ever been really under those circumstances playing a semifinal at Wimbledon and he started the match against John great and was was like into the match right away there was no hesitation with what he wanted to do. Well I'm in the player lounge and I'm pleased to say uh, joining me now is Vedran Marchich, coach of Karen Hachinov. Vedran, thank you so much for joining us on ATP Tennis Radio. Thank you for the interview. <laughs> so first of all, congratulations to Karen. He just reached his first semifinals of a Masters 1000 event. Now he's had a, he's had a great year so far. He won Marseille earlier in the year and then 
round of 16 both at Roland Garros and Wimbledon. How will those matches give him a lot of confidence, obviously coming into this event, but also leading up to the U.S. Open for the yeah, next slam? Always is good for the player to have a lot of matches, so you can practice a lot, but uh, without matches it's difficult to play well. So uh, Karen played well in Roland Garros, then after in Halle he played well too, third round. He almost beat, uh, he won against Nishikori, lost uh, to Bautista, good, but was close match. And in Wimbledon he played well, uh, first time I think he won two matches, uh, five sets, and uh, one time he was, uh, one match uh, he was two sets up, uh, then two all uh, against Baghdadis, then he managed to win fifth set, which is great, and against the four he was two love sets down. Uh, and then he managed to win three sets in a row, so that was great for him, I think. And then he lost to Djokovic, who won tournament. And you've worked with him actually in the past before, from 2014 to 2016, and then took some time off because you didn't want to travel so much, but now you're back with him on the tour. Just from when you worked with him back then to now, how do you feel like he's matured and, and gotten better over those years? He practiced in Barcelona a lot with Galo Blanco, who is a very good coach, and uh, he improved his uh, ranking to top 50. Uh, I, I coached him one and a half year when he was junior, and he did some good results. He was like 440 in the world just with three events. So he, he, in Moscow he played uh, quarters, and in Geneva he played quarters in Challenger with wildcard with 17. So. And then after Gallo took care of him and he brought him to, I think, best rank was 28, 27. And uh, when I started with him, he was 45 already in the world. So it was a good situation. So because he's uh, in main row in almost all, all big events, so it's easier than go through qualities, to, through challengers with the players. So for sure it's, it was for me easier to, to, to to take care about him when he was already 45 in the world. And I know also in the past, as a coach, you've worked with Goran Ivanisevic, um, Grand Slam champion. What are some things that you learned mentally, I say, from Goran to prepare Karen Hachinov to be co- for a Grand Slam title one day? Yeah, for sure. It's a great experience to work with Goran, who was a great player, uh, top 10 all the time. So, over 10 years he was top 10 player. So, I worked with him almost five years. So, uh, that is for sure for me big experience. And before I traveled a lot with Bobrett and uh, Goran. I was Goran close friend, and after I started to coach him, and uh, we were together like almost five years. So, but uh, of course uh, I have experience because I, I was in the final Grand Slam with Goran when he lost to Sampras five sets. So I had some experience <laughs> in Grand Slams, and Goran did semis U.S. Open when I was coach. Or so for sure is uh, for Karen better to have some coach that already was in these situations. Uh, uh, and just mentally, like to prepare Karen for a potential Grand Slam title. Is there anything that you learned um, from Goran since he had been in that situation before? With Goran, I had some different situation, but I not watch uh, winning. What means winning Grand Slam? You never know what you, you yeah, will win. Yeah, but still the final. So is, uh, but uh, for sure is uh, good uh, to pass first round, second round, and then <laughs> slowly progress to tournament. You never know what will happen. But uh, you know, when you see the draw, if first you think about first match, and then you see next match, so uh, it's difficult to think just about winning. So. Uh, 
so like, like this. So, but he need to be ready to beat the best guy. So this year he has a uh, lot of match against top ten guys, but he didn't manage. He played some close matches against Del Potro. Okay, Anderson he won set in Miami. So, but uh, against Djokovic he lost. Uh, Three zero sets. He lost to Nadal easy three three and two in uh, Monte Carlo. But now he won against Isner. That is great. That uh, he managed to, to beat top ten guy, and that gives him some confidence. But and uh, I I also know that he plays a lot of doubles. Um, do you feel like the playing doubles has helped his singles quite a bit? I would like to say yes, but <laughs> <laughs> I would like him to go more sometimes serve and volley for serve or um, return aggressive in doubles or uh, play a little bit more volleys and this, but uh, <laughs> I hope that he can improve some things <laughs> through doubles, yeah. So that's your goal then, is to work on that part of his yeah, game? of course, yeah, to be closer on return, to be aggressive, because in double you cannot return defensive. Uh, to improve volleys and uh, to improve maybe some serve and volley few times on first serve at least so uh, that will be that will be a reason to play doubles well i've been able to sneak into a small interview room and i've been lucky enough to grab tournament referee and also supervisor for the wta tour but here at the rogers cup tournament referee tony cho tony thank you so much for joining us here on atp tennis radio Thanks, Joe, for having me. <laughs> now, a little bit of a frustrating day because the weather's not cooperating so far. So how difficult is it for a day like this when it's raining and you don't, you're not really sure what's going to happen as far as um, the scheduling and making the players wait around? Absolutely. I think uh, the one side, obviously, is the players, and I think that's where the ATP Tour managers and the supervisors look at that in terms of you know how it's going to affect the players and so forth. As a tournament referee, I'm trying to juggle, obviously, uh, many things, including the spectators on site that come the fans that come and pay for the tickets, uh, TV requests. We have Roger Sports as a host broadcaster. We have ATP Media that's here for the international broadcasters as well. So it's uh, it's definitely challenging trying to balance everything and kind of make it fair for everybody. Um, last night, as an example, you know we had a rain situation. So how long do you hold the players? You know because you need to be able to hold the players long enough so that. You know, people that are waiting to see the matches, um, they can get to see the matches. But at the same time, you don't really want to keep the players too late because they have to come back the next day to play if we do cancel. So a lot of those decisions, you know, we have a scheduling meeting. We have uh, six, seven people in the scheduling meeting representing all the different parts of the big puzzle. And then we have to sit around and uh, try to kind of uh, come up with a solution that's best and workable for everybody. Now, is that a situation, because I know you were very close to canceling last night, and then it stopped raining and the courts got dry just at the right time to put the players back on the court. Is this something that you talk to the players about or they give you feedback on? Yes, absolutely. Um, last night was very tricky because they always come up, you know, same thing with uh, Chilich last night. He was asking about, uh, you know, what's the forecast say? <laughs> and as you know, you know, where there are a million weather apps out there and we look at different radars. We even have a weather service that gives us updates and we have a meteorologist on not on site but at the office kind of giving us updates and everything. So we pay for that service and uh, we can kind of see what's coming. But once again, weather changes very quickly. So, you know, we had spots last night throughout the whole thing and throughout the site. But these were just spots that were popping up and going away. So it's really difficult to kind of tell the players 
player say, listen, you know what, you need to kind of hang around, but at the same time, we have spectators waiting to see the matches, so you can't really cancel too early. Luckily, last night, we were able to get the first match in, uh, which was a Shapovalov singles match, so in terms of our ticket policy, we also have to look at that, so we comp- the one completed match is good for the ticket policy, so in essence, we don't really have to refund those tickets, so it helps in terms of getting that match through, and then that gives us more options. If we hadn't finished that first match, then now we're in a, in a situation where we have to hold as long as we can in order to at least have you know, the future match uh, completed. And I know last week also was a tough week with the weather in Washington for the men. Um, what, what is the exact rule as far as the latest that you can put a match on? Well, it's, uh, that's you know, probably a more of a question for the ATP supervisor. But in terms of thing, we try not to put a match on after midnight. But once again, we do have the flexibility and the right, in essence, to be able to put matches later on if we have to. You know, scheduling is a, is a very complicated process, but we have to look at, okay, you know, which, which round are you in? Is, is the opponent through? Is the opponent not through? Do you have to play this match? You know, some players would prefer to play late rather than doubling up the next day. So if you hold a match until, let's say, 10, 11 o'clock, and then tell the guys, listen, you have to play twice tomorrow or wait a little bit longer and then finish the match today and then come back tomorrow late. And I think, you know, you as, a, as an ex-player probably have to tell, it's probably better to play later right. and yeah. then play agree, the next yeah. match. Exactly. So I think that's kind of one of the things that we look at. It was the same situation last week. That's probably what they, you know, discuss. And that's what we discuss almost, you know, every week when we have tournaments with, uh, with inclement weather situations. And you mentioned um, the spectators, for example, the fans coming, the ticket sales. Um, is there a certain period of time if they don't get to see maybe a certain amount of matches that, you know, their tickets are funded or they get to come the next day? Absolutely. So every tournament is uh, has their own ticket policy. You know, there are you know varying you know levels that they do. Sometimes they say it's completed match. So if a match is completed, even if it's six love, six love, then that counts. Um, there are other places that do you know on a time basis. If you have ninety minutes of play, you know the ticket policy comes into effect, and you don't have to refund tickets. But a lot of tournaments, as a goodwill gesture, they would try to if a, if a session gets you know canceled. They would uh, try to make it up by allowing, you know, ticket holders to get another ticket for another session if they're not sold out or come back next year, the following year, and get tickets. So a lot of the bigger tournaments have that ticket policy because, um, you know, even here in Toronto, as we get to the weekend, we're pretty much sold out for everything. So you can't say come back later in the week, whereas some other tournaments would be able to do that. So, you know, we could offer, hey, listen, you can come back next year for the women or two years from now for the men. So we also have that kind of situation. And as far as, um, you know, being prepared, because there's so many tournaments that are now putting on roofs and covering the courts. I talked to tournament director Carl Hale a few days ago, and he mentioned, you know, he's all about progressing this tournament, of course. He mentioned a possible roof in a couple years. Um, Do you know if they will do that? And as far as covering the outside courts with tarps, just to be more prepared, what's the policy on that or what's the plan Um, for that? More and more tournaments, I think, you know, as you know, it's U.S. Open as well as most of the slams now have a roof to cover. And I think one of the biggest things is the fact that, you know, we do have huge number of tickets, tickets, uh, you know, sold. So when you're thinking about 12,000 people, including suites and everything else in order to cancel a session it's actually a huge impact on everybody including obviously the guests that come to the tournament so having a roof obviously is a, is a huge benefit and I think that's kind of the trend that we're seeing with all the major events you know they're in order to have a roof that uh, that you're guaranteed to have play on center court 
you know, I think a f 20 years ago we had a roof in Tokyo and <laughs> played until forever. So, you know, having the ability to have a roof and to get matches through does definitely help. On the outside course, it's just too expensive. It's just way too expensive in order to to be cut able to, to for the roofs or to cover to the for the roofs for the to roofs, put yeah. to roof any kind of cover on the outside course just becomes way too difficult, um, too difficult and too expensive in essence to to be able to do that. It doesn't really justify the cost. It's the same thing at the slams. So like the U.S. Open, you only have the center court cover. Maybe you know you're gonna have other courts, but as of right now, it just becomes too costly. In terms of the tarp covering the court on hardcore, it just becomes too difficult. Um, you know, I get that question so many times from spectators, from broadcasters, everything. Like, Why don't you guys just cover the court? Well, it's not really a simple problem. As you know, you know, at the grass court tournaments, we have a, a, a cover that blows up in order to keep the water off the grass. You know, on clay court tournaments, we have a tarp to cover the clay course because if a clay court gets too much water, it becomes unplayable now for the rest of the day. So we can't have too much water soaking into the clay, and that's the reason why you have the cover or the court becomes too soft. On a hard court, it doesn't matter how much rain you get. You get 100 millimeters of rain or 10 millimeters of rain, it's the same thing. The court is wet. Once you push the water off, now the court is, in essence, ready. So you push the water off, and you dry the court, and then you can play. So in order to have a tarp, you cover the, tarp, the court with a tarp, remove the water off the tarp, and then have to get underneath to clear everything else that goes under the tarp. It just becomes too difficult and too time-consuming. As an example here at the Rogers Cup in Toronto, uh, if you cover the center court, you can see how big the court is. By the time you put a tarp over everything and then take it off, push the water off, it just becomes even, it will probably take close to an hour just to do that process because you can imagine how big this tarp would have to be in order to cover the court. So it just becomes almost too much time to do it. If we just let the rain come down on the courts, we push the water off and put the blowers on the court. Right now, and last night when we had to dry the courts, we probably had about 25, 30 blowers on the court. So you have, you know, push the water off and put the blowers on, the court is ready to go in 30 minutes. So I was just going to ask Zach how long it takes because every hard court is different as far as every hard. It's not so much the court is different; it's more the conditions. Okay. Because you know, yesterday you know when we did have some rain, but it's in the middle of the day where it was very hot. The court surface is still very hot, and there's you know a lot of uh, uh, some wind coming in. So then that would dry the court within 20 minutes because the court is hot. Now when you have nice session and the conditions are a bit cooler, you don't really have much wind, then the course is not gonna dry as fast. So it just depends on the conditions, but because we have the blowers and the ability to have as many staff on court as possible in order to dry the courts, 30 minute turnaround is actually pretty quick from when it stops mm -hmm. raining to quick, get the yeah. players on court. If you had a tire, it would just take too long. And uh, do you know how about, uh, about how many blowers? Oh, wow, we have uh, probably close to 50 blowers. Wow. So we have, the, the reason we have so many of them is we rent them. You know, we do own some, but we rent a lot of them because, you know, we also have grandstand court. And the grandstand court, center court, the distance is quite a bit, quite a bit. So we have 20 blowers out on the grandstand court area in order to dry all the outside courts. And we keep 30 on center court in order to dry center court. As we get later on in the week, we'll start moving all the blowers towards the main court so in order to have more blowers available for center court.
Um, okay, now shifting gears a little bit because I was watching some of the center court matches yesterday, the addition of the shot clock. Um, talk about that a little bit and kind of the rules behind it. I know there's quite a few rules that are involved with that shot clock, and, and there is some leeway to it a little bit. Yes, absolutely. Um, the, the shot clock or the serve clock, um, it's something, it was an initiative that, you know, that we started off, I think, last year at the U.S. Open qualifying tournament. So we wanted to kind of see, you know, um, tennis, we're trying to innovate, you know, different things and, and try to bring new things that are kind of interesting. So we tested it at the U.S. Open qualifying, and last year we did it at the Australian Open qualifying this year, Roland Garros qualifying as well as Wimbledon qualifying. So we've, we've actually used the serve clock. So uh, when I was speaking to some of the players, uh, I was down in San Jose for the introduction of the soccer clock for the WTA event there, and we're talking about it. Uh, it's interesting because all the qualifying players knew about it and were used to it. Whereas the main drop players weren't, because uh, last week was the introduction of the serve clock, in essence, for the first time for the main drop players, both in Washington, ATP WTA, and San Jose WTA event. So it was something new for them, you know, even players like Serena, Venus, Madison, they were all kind of, wow, this is kind of interesting. And the good thing about it, I think, is that... Oh, but interesting, how did they think? Were they, um, did they feel... Did they like it or? Yes, I think I think one of the things is that first off, they really didn't know how it's going to affect them until they got on the court. Mm-hmm. That was one thing that they wanted to kind of see. The second part of it that they were kind of good about, a lot of the players were saying, so actually this is good for me because uh, it's going to allow me to pace myself better. Okay. So if it's a uh, you know if you are a bit tired or you have a long point, you can see how much time you have. So I speak to one player and they were saying, oh yeah, you know I get to the line too quickly. Now I can see kind of how much time I have, and then I can kind of uh, adjust my rhythm or my pace in order to see when I have to serve. That's interesting because that's not the reason it was originally Correct. brought up, exactly. right? Exactly, <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I think this is the part where I think it's kind of made it a bit interesting for the players because now they can kind of see. For the spectators also, it's kind of interesting to have a clock there, so that's been a, a good positive thing. Also for the TV, has been fantastic because with the, with the interaction of the serve clock, we also introduced this one five one rule, which we can talk about later. But uh, going back to the serve clock, the 25 seconds, you know, the reason I, want to, I like to call it actually the serve clock is because the 25 seconds is actually for the server only. It's not for the receiver. So the receiver has to play to the reasonable pace of the server. So the shot clock kind of says, okay, you know, both players have it. You know, the serve clock kind of says, okay, the server has 25 seconds. So it kind of makes it a little bit more interesting. In terms of the serve clock, we've, and it's not really rules because um, it's. Can I, uh, can I just ask yeah. you one thing about mm-hmm. that? What happens if the returner doesn't inc- play to the server's pace and goes over that 25 seconds? Uh, good question, actually, because right now um, on uh, the server, has 25 seconds. So if they go over the 25 seconds, they get a warning for the first instance, and then every instance thereafter, they lose their serve. In a sense, you lose your first serve, you have to hit a second serve. Okay. On the receiver side. Is that just side, for the second time, or is that for the second time continuous and then subsequent, play. continuously. So every yes. single time they just take a first serve away. Correct. Okay. So in essence, you lose your serve, so then you have to hit a second serve. In the For the receiver side, obviously, they can lose their serve. So for the first instance, is a warning, and then thereafter, they lose a point. So it's a loss of point for every single time that they go over the, the, the if they're not ready to receive to the server's pace. And once again, we say reasonable pace of the server because we don't expect the receiver to be ready within 10 seconds if the server is very quick. So that's the reason why we say reasonable pace, and then they can kind of play to that pace. Um, the 25-second the clock as well, one of the big things that we've done, which is a little bit different from... We call it the protocol. It's a little bit different than what uh, what we've been doing in the past. Is that in the past, when the point ends, the chair umpire enters the score on the tablet, 
And as soon as I enter the score on the tablet, the clock starts. So then the 25-second countdown starts as soon as they enter the point, which is kind of what it is. With the new protocol that we have in place that we introduced last week, and we're going to keep through all the U.S. Open Series events, including the U.S. Open, is that the, the point ends, the chair power will enter the score. The clock doesn't start. So the chair power will announce the score when it's appropriate, then start the clock. So in essence, there is a little bit of time between the point ends and when the chair power starts the clock. And the reason that we did that is because to allow, let's say you have a huge long point and you have a you know, huge crowd reaction, the crowd's applauding. You really don't want to start the clock right away because you need kind of a time where you know the crowd is kind of settling down a little bit and the player is getting ready because to keep the atmosphere a little bit correct yeah. exactly so you keep the atmosphere as well as for the player you know recovering a little bit from that point or you know when the crowd is applying you're not really getting ready yourself to play the point so this allows the player in order to have some time before they can actually be ready so we, what we told the players both on the ATP and the WTA side is once you hear the chair umpire announce the score that's when the clock starts so once the chairman announces the score, now mentally you're going to be prepared and ready to know that, okay, the clock has started now. I need to start getting ready, in essence, to start the point. And yeah, yesterday it was funny because I was just watching Marinka and Kyrgios in particular, and you could see, you know, you could see what you were talking about, the main draw, that they weren't quite used to it. And I saw a little bit of a frustration, and but I think they did end up getting used to it, especially if, like, the ball kid didn't bring the towel right away. You could see them panicking mm-hmm. just a tad. Yeah, absolutely. But like you said, I think it's just something to probably get yes, used I th- to. Yes, and I think one of, the, one of the things that we find interesting, actually, is that, you know, Players obviously have been getting time violations, you know, here and there and everything else. But what we found is that we've never had one player complain about getting a time violation once the clock reached zero. What we did have, though, is players complaining that the chair umpire is not giving time violations when the clock reaches zero. Interesting. Yes, wow. exactly. So yeah. it's more, it has more been the receiver more than the server complaining. So the receiver sees the clock going to zero and the server is not serving, then they're going to say something. Well, Tony, fascinating stuff. I mean, I could sit here and talk to you forever, but I know you got to go. So (laughs) you're one of my favorite WTA supervisors on the tour. It was such a pleasure to work with you when I was on there. But thank you so much for joining us here on ATP Tennis Radio. Thanks, Jill. Should say before we go, and thank you again to Jill and for everybody who spoke to us on ATP Tennis Radio, that it is prediction time again. I managed before Miles left the building to squeeze in his predictions for Cincinnati. He's currently mid-table mediocrity in the predictions table. I set a record for the least amount of points. I came, they didn't even give me a wooden spoon. It was so bad, my Toronto predictions. Miles has gone Federer, Cilic, Rafa Nadal with Del Potro as his alternate. The other big news from the predictions, if you do follow them via the podcast or on ATP Tennis Radio, is Naomi Cavaday has been disloyal. Pablo Crano Busta, a mainstay in her predictions, is out. Nadal Kyrgios and Dimitrov. We would love, we always have a listener representative, so please get in touch via Twitter at ATP Tennis Radio with your prediction. So your top three, then give us an alternate just in case one of them pulls out before the tournament begins. There is no prize. It's just the pride of coming above some of the tennis experts. So if you'd like to get in touch at ATP Tennis Radio on Twitter, we would love your predictions because we move on straight away to Cincinnati. A couple of matches as I'm talking to you now have been complete or will be completed with Adrian Manorino through and Marco Cech 
Bernardo out and Kyle Edmund due to be on court. You're going to join us if you tune into ATP Tennis Radio via the tournament website, atpworldtour.com, tune in radio website or app, tennis TV website or app, or any kind of smart speaker. We'll be with you every day from half an hour before the start of play. So for Monday, that is 10.30 a.m. local time. Make sure you're with us. But half an hour before the day's play starts, we will get you set up for what's ahead. And to keep up to date with all sorts of results and what's going on, then it's atpworldtour.com. And we look forward to your company once again soon. This has been the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. <laughs>